Hasta luego y maranata. Hasta luego. See you later. Because it's true. And we just want you to know how much we love you. And it's just too bad time has to fly by. I'm so looking forward to heaven. When there's no clocks or calendars. Eternal fellowship. We have no idea the good things that are waiting for us, do we? And... I said it the other day, but I have to say it again. We thank you so much for all of your prayers and your support over the years and you being there for us. It really helps us to just keep our eyes on the Lord and his work there and keep doing it. And so keep praying because Spain is still a stubborn country. That part hasn't changed. But God's grace is sufficient. Let's come to the book of Revelation. down a little bit. Book of Revelation chapter 18, uh, sorry, chapter 11, verse 18. Revelation eleven eighteen. Now, just to confuse the people who are putting the text up. On the screen, I'm going to back up one verse, so I'll wait a second. Ed just gave me a look. (laughs) Okay. Verse 17, saying, We give thee thanks, O Lord God Almighty, which art and wast and art to come, because thou hast taken to thee thy great power and hast reigned. And the nations were angry. And thy wrath is come in the time of the dead, that they should be judged, and that thou shouldest give reward unto thy servants, the prophets, and to the saints, to them that fear thy name, small and great, and shouldest destroy them that destroy the earth. Shall we pray? We are grateful, Heavenly Father, for the word of God. We come before you in reverence. We come before you with spiritual hunger. We pray for the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our heart. We know it is he who must take of the things of Christ and show them unto us. We know that man's word is good for nothing. Only God's word counts. Your word has power. And you have declared in your word that if any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. If any man minister, let him do it as of the ability which God giveth, that God in all things may be glorified through Jesus Christ. This is our desire, that you would meet with us this evening. And so bless your word to our hearts and manifest your presence among us, that we will truly be able to say we have met with God tonight. We ask it in the name and by the merits of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. I know there are at least uh, three sisters who know tonight very well the meaning of the words due date. (laughs) Well, actually, probably all the ladies do because they're either a sister to somebody or a mother to somebody or they're the person carrying the baby. So, due date. Things don't go on forever. When I was growing up, I remember those words that most children don't like to hear. Time for bed. And you're out playing. Time to come home. When you're just so... Comfortable in your sleep and having a pleasant dream and suddenly something touches you or shakes you or that clock goes off and you hear the words, time to get up, time to go to school, time to go to work. The Bible says there's a time for everything. And in this verse 18 that is before us tonight, he's speaking about the coming of the time of the judgment of God. For 2,000 years now, God's people have been praying what is called the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, 
hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Do you think we're just going to go on praying that prayer forever and ever? It's just some kind of a religious ceremony without any meaning. It's just something meant to calm us down or to make us feel religious. God has a calendar. God has a clock. Time is not a renewable resource. It's non-renewable. It's being used up. Every day time is running out. Every day we are approaching this famous or infamous for some people date on the calendar of God. The moment is coming. At the speed of 60 seconds a minute and 60 minutes an hour, we are approaching the meeting with the God who has promised that he is going to judge those who do not believe and he's going to reward his saints and he's going to bring down visible before all men his eternal kingdom. And set it up on earth. It's coming. We shall reign with Him. Is the hope of the believers. He will reign on this earth. In the book of Daniel chapter 2 and verse 44 it says. In the days of those kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom. That will never be destroyed. And since the days of Daniel. The faithful have been waiting and expecting that kingdom. We have it more specifically described and explained to us and promised to us in the New Testament, in Thessalonians, in the the Olivet Discourse of our Lord in Matthew 24, in the whole book of Revelation and other places. We are told very clearly in the Scriptures that it's coming. And here when we read in verse 18 of chapter 11 of Revelation, these words... Thy wrath is come and the time of the dead that they should be judged. That's it. That's the time. The time has come. And when God says, time's up, that's it. You don't get to put another token in and have another three minutes. You don't get to have another life. You don't get to have another chance. When God says that's it, that's it. Time's up. Look at what he's saying here in this verse 18. It is so full of promise and of warning to people who don't know Christ. Warning to the world. God is sending his messages of warning. He sends them through nature. All of the cataclysms. The things that have been happening in the world around us. The increase of them. The severity of them. The perplexity of nations. Men don't have answers for their problems. To their economic and political problems, they apply the same solutions that in times past always worked and now they do nothing. Nothing seems to work. Why not? The Lord said, in the last days there will be perplexity of nations. No solutions for their problems. Things are coming to a climax. The history of this earth and of mankind is coming to a conclusion. Time moves on a line from a beginning. It has a middle point and it has an end. The Hindu concept and in some other oriental nations, the concept of time as a circle where you're moving around in this circle of incarnation, death and reincarnation, moving around and around endlessly and hoping to get out of it. Somehow, that is not the divine concept of time. Time has a beginning. Time has a middle point and time has an end. And in Revelation 11 and verse 18, we have the end of this time. The nations were angry, he says. We're coming very quickly now to the time of the wrath of the nations. Nothing, probably nothing, in all of history and in all of humanity shows the perversity and the depravity of the human race like man's anger against God, man's wrath against God, the nation's angry with God. What did he do? Look at verse 17. 
We give thee thanks, the saints say. They're glad he came and reigned. O Lord God Almighty. Why? Because thou hast taken to thee thy great power and hast reigned. The kingdom of God is coming and in heaven they're praising him. He's mounting the white horse. He's about to come down with his armies behind him and set up that kingdom on earth. The kingdom of God is forever. But that kingdom on earth will be for a thousand years until there is a final rebellion and all the rebels in the earth that they lived on are destroyed in fire and then will come the new heaven and the new earth in which reign righteousness, in which dwell righteousness. And that kingdom will continue forever. This is what all of heaven is waiting for. They're not waiting for the next election. They're not waiting for the next invention. They're not waiting for the next medicine. They're not waiting for the next discovery. All of heaven is waiting for the coming of the king. We thank thee. And on earth, while they're mourning and pulling their hair out in heaven, they're singing and praising God. They mourn the destruction of the cities and the armies of those that hate God. In heaven, they're praising him and thanking him. It has to happen because I'll tell you why. God cannot be the friend of good without being the enemy of evil. He cannot be the friend of good without being the enemy of evil. Those things have to happen. God's kingdom cannot be established on the earth as long as wickedness rules and manifests itself here on this earth. You would think that people would be glad to give up their wickedness, their selfishness, their own plans and ideas, their philosophies, and have that one perfect, good, benign, blessed king come down from heaven and rule and bless the earth. In the, in the prophet Amos, he tells us that when he reigns on the earth, it says the sower will overtake the reaper, which means they won't be through gathering up, reaping the harvest from the last year. It will be so plentiful in the days when Christ reigns on the earth that the reapers will still be in the field gathering in the harvest and the sowers will come along and say, it's time to sow the seed, move out of the way. The sower overtakes the reaper. They can't get it all in to the barns and it's already time to sow again. Mankind does not know how to manage the resources of this earth. You would think they would be glad for that. You would think they would be glad for someone who can do away with crime and injustice. You would think they would be glad to have someone who can do more than just make promises to try to improve things a little. But when he comes to reign, it says the nations were angry. Why were they angry? What did God do, I ask you, to give anyone a legitimate cause to be angry with him? In the book of Psalms, the second psalm is famous for its description of this attitude, this inexplicable attitude of the nations toward the only good and perfect king there ever has been. Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The question is why? The question is not do the heathen rage or how long have they been doing it? The question is why? He's astonished. Why are they doing this? Why are they so upset? What are they angry about? They need to go to an anger management class. Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth, they can't even rule their own kingdoms. They come together in their confederations and their alliances and their groups of seven and groups of eight and whatever else it might be. They can't rule. They can't solve earth's problems. And they resent the coming of the one person who can do it. It says here, they take counsel together against the Lord, against his anointed, saying, let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. And I ask you, why? What is there wrong, what injustice, what unkindness, what is there criminal, what is there cruel, what is there unfair about the rule of Christ, about the rule of God on earth, when the earth will be perfect in righteousness, in holiness, in peace, and will be blessed 
in nature, as God will cause all of his creation to bring forth and produce, as it has never done in the history of mankind. What do they have to be mad about? Well, they have the same thing to be mad about that you do, you who are not Christians yet. The main reason you're not a Christian yet, I'll venture to say, is because you don't want to get off the throne of your life. You want to run your own life. That's what kept me saying I was a Christian for 24 years of my life, going to church and being one of the world's biggest fakes. I knew all the right things to say, but I didn't want to give up my life. I didn't want to give up the controls. I had two ways to do it. One was how I behaved in the meeting, and the other was how I lived outside of the meeting. I didn't want to give it up. I was happy to believe in Jesus that could forgive your sins and take away eternal punishment. But I didn't want him getting into my life, interfering with my life. Let me tell you something, friend, this evening. You can't have it that way. You don't get to write the menu. You can't have it your way. And this is what's wrong with the nations. This is what shows the perverse, depraved condition, the wickedness of the human heart, that the only person who could do us any good, we don't want him to come in. Humanity doesn't want him to come and rule. And people, even sitting in churches, even evangelicals, who are happy to sing songs that they like about Jesus or feelings or whatever, but they don't want him into their life, ruling their lives. Wake up. You're going to be one of the ones who's angry at his coming. The wrath of the nations. The Lord takes his great power and reigns, and the reaction of the nations is, get out. Leave us alone. Don't put your reins on us. Don't put your controls on us. And there are people to this very day call themselves Christians and live in fear that someone or something might control their lives. And anyone who speaks to them about the authority of the Scriptures and about the demands and the claims of God on their life, they say, oh, he's a control freak. They just want to control us. Well, let me just uh, tell you very plainly. God does want to control you. He wants to control you for good, for blessing. He wants to introduce you to the kingdom. Colossians 1.15 says, take you out of the kingdom of darkness and introduce you to the kingdom of his dear son. And in that kingdom, you will have a king. And he has authority. And he will guide your life. And the Lord told his apostles, go and baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit and teach them to Obey or observe all things that I have commanded you. Jesus Christ didn't make any mistake when he gave that commission. And the church, I don't care who they are or where they are or what studies or letters they have behind their name, no one has the right to mess with the command that Christ gave to his holy apostles. That command stands to this very day. But the nations don't like it. And some of you don't like it. You want to run your own life. You want Jesus to get you out of hell and you want him to leave you alone on earth. And it doesn't work that way. The wrath of nations. They're angry because he's coming. In Revelation chapter 16. Revelation chapter 16. We see what their response is to the gathering armies and multitude of heaven that's about to accompany the Lord down to this earth to reign. Revelation chapter 16 verse 12. And the sixth angel poured out his vial upon the great river Euphrates, and the water thereof was dried up, that the way of the kings of the east might be prepared. And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs come out of the mouth of the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. For they are the spirits of the devils working miracles which go forth to the kings of the earth and of the whole world, to gather them together for the battle of that great day of God Almighty. This is the one thing that men will agree about. To tell God to get out and leave them alone. They might be of different religious or philosophical persuasions. They might have different uh, ethnic traditions. They might belong to different countries. 
But about this one thing they will agree. Get out and leave us alone. Let us run our own lives. They'll come together. They'll gather together. And they're willing to do it with armies. Although one wonders, what do they think they can use against God to fight against God? One wonders if it isn't really dementia. That they would gather together and think that with arrows or or high-tech weapons, they're going to do something against the Almighty. I say again, the wrath of man and the wrath of nations and your resentment of God's authority in your life, these are things that show the depravity and the perversity of the human heart. You have no reason. He's never done anything to deserve this kind of reaction that people have. He only does good to those who trust in Him. He saves everyone who trusts in Him. He delivers them from wrath. But they don't want to be delivered. They want to fight it out and work it out for themselves. This is where they're headed. The wrath of the nations. You took your great power and reigned, and this is how they responded. They said, the second psalm says, get out. Leave us alone. We live in a world that is drunk with independence. We live in a world where people, all they think about are their personal rights and liberties. Nobody wants anybody to govern them. We live in a world of of people who are resentful of divinely established authority. And they don't want any. We live in a world that wants to live in chaos. We live in a world like the days of the kings of Judges when it says in the Old Testament in the book of Judges, in those days there was no king in Israel and every man did that which was right in his own eyes. And in those days, they had some of the most perverse sexual behavior. In those days, they had all kinds of corruption and kingdoms and judgments. They had all kinds of difficulties. It's incredible to read the sins into which they fell in the days of the judges. You read the book of Judges, it's enough to make your hair stand on end. Well, I don't have much left to stand on end. Maybe that's where it went. No king. And everybody did what was right in his own eyes. Oh, you think you have the right to your own, to live your life the way you want to. Well, you can do it. But remember this. Everyone is free to decide how they want to live, how he wants to live, and free to suffer the consequences of his decision. You can decide. No one is going to decide for you. But no one but you will be responsible for the consequences of that decision, be it good or be it evil. The wrath of the nations. In Revelation chapter 12 and verse 12, they're warned when Satan is cast out of heaven. And it says in verse 12, Therefore rejoice ye heavens and ye that dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and of the sea. For the devil is come down unto you having great wrath because he knows that he hath but short time. The devil knows something that some of you haven't learned yet. And I'm trying to tell it to you. And God's trying to tell it to you in his word. And other servants of the Lord are trying to tell it to you. Time is running out. Time is short. And the shorter it is, the devil doesn't get more humble He doesn't repent. The shorter it is, the angrier he becomes. He feels threatened and he fights like a cornered rat. He knows his time is short. I wonder if there's somebody here tonight that needs to wake up and find out that their time is short and learn that your time is short. The time has come, the Lord says. He's going to take his power and reign. He's going to answer that prayer, that part of the Lord's prayer. He's going to come into reign. And woe to the person that finds himself with the angry concerning the person of Christ. Is Jesus Christ your Lord and Master this evening? Is Jesus Christ your Savior? Have you put all of your hope and all of your trust only in him for the forgiveness of sins and eternal life? Are you willing to have him as your King and your Lord? Is there anything in you that resents His hand upon your shoulder? His voice to guide your life? The instructions of His Word? Then you're in trouble. You're manifesting the symptoms of the wrath 
of the nations. And what does God think of the wrath of the nations? Revelation chapter 11, where we're reading, Thy wrath is come. The nations were angry, and thy wrath is come. So we're thinking about the end of time. We're thinking not only about the wrath of the nations, but about the wrath of God. And in the second psalm, when he speaks about how the nations were angry, he comes back to speak about God's response to that. And let's read it. Psalm 2. Verse 4, he that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. That means he'll mock them. Then shall he speak to them in his wrath and vex them in his sore displeasure. The nations were angry and thy wrath is come. This evening, as I speak to you, it is not yet the time of God's wrath. Two thousand years ago on the cross at Calvary, God celebrated a great judgment against sin. His Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, hung there, innocent and holy, perfect, spotless Lamb of God, hung there on the cross, carrying our sins in His body there on that tree. He did no wrong. Even His enemies said it. He's not worthy of death. He did nothing wrong. He did not deserve to die. Why did they nail him there? Why did he allow himself to go through that? And what was this judgment that, that fell upon him as he hung there? An innocent, the only innocent, holy, righteous, and perfect person that ever lived the face of this earth, hanging on a cross, suffering and dying. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Do you know the answer to that question? Have you ever come to the place in your life where you said, I'm the answer to that question? It was for me. Why was he forsaken? Why was he crucified? Peter says it, and those who call him their first pope don't believe a word of what he says. He says, he bore our sins in his own body on the tree. That's what he was doing there. Carrying our sins, being our substitute, Taking our punishment. Psalm 69 says that he paid, he restored that which he did not take away. We're the ones who robbed God. We're the ones who did him wrong. And yet Christ at Calvary paid for what we did. Isaiah speaks of it in that wonderful 53rd chapter. Despised and rejected of men. A man of sorrows and acquainted for grief. Why was he there? Why was he there? Why was he bruised? Why was he pierced? Why did he spill his blood? Why did he give his life? He did it because God was celebrating a judgment. All of God's wrath from heaven was poured out on the man that hung on Calvary's tree. He suffered for us. The just, Peter says, for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. And that's still an offer. That God makes to each and every one of us tonight. If you're here tonight as a person who hasn't trusted yet in Christ, you haven't taken Him as your Lord and King, as your Savior, you haven't found forgiveness of sin in Him, know this, that tonight His hands are still open and pleading. But the time is coming. Time is running out. You don't have time to sit with crossed arms thinking about it And being casual about it. Time is running out. And the wrath of God is coming. Because God has in mercy delayed his wrath for thousands of years. There are many people, foolish people, silly people, ignorant people. Who believe that God couldn't lift a finger against humanity. They think of him as a great sponge ball of love who can't do anything. They think of him as an old grandfather sitting in a rocking chair, rocking and laughing at his grandchildren out there, and he's going to let them all in the house whether they're fighting and pulling each other's hair or not because, like some grandfathers we know, he just can't help himself. (laughs) 
God is righteous. And his wrath is nothing to be afraid of. Let me tell you, the wrath of God is perfectly managed. It's holy. It's righteous. And not only that, it's good. If you haven't come to the place where you understand that the wrath of God is holy, righteous, and good, you need to get back into the Bible and get to know the God of the Bible. His wrath of God is not like a family when they have a drunk and they try to hide it from others. It's not some characteristic or feature of our Heavenly Father that we wish other people wouldn't know about and we try to hide it from the public. There is nothing to be ashamed of or apologetic for in the wrath of God. He cannot be the friend of good and not be the enemy of evil. Sin must be judged. And it will be judged. And He has promised it in His Word. And He has displayed it over the the sands of time, over the long years of history, over and over again. There was a flood. And every living soul on the earth except for eight in the ark died. And that's not a story or a parable. That's history. Eight lived and everyone else died. Fire rained down from heaven on Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities that practice what a lot of people around here are practicing. And Billy Graham himself said it years ago. I think it was back in the 70s. He said... If God doesn't judge cities like San Francisco, he's going to have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. And he said that. You can be mad at me for quoting him if you want to. I don't care. There was the Red Sea when the people of God crossed into liberty. And the sea came in and destroyed the army of the mightiest nation on the face of the earth in those times. Pharaoh and his chariots. Pharaoh and his legions. His Green Beret, his special forces, his Republican Guard, away they went, destroyed forever. That was the hand of God, not the hand of Israel. Israel has invented a lot of things, but they haven't learned how to move the sea yet in their favor. In the days of Joshua... When they were coming into the land that God had promised them and the, and the nations were gathered together in anger against God's people to try to keep them out of the land that God had promised to them. It says that great hailstones fell from heaven upon the armies of the nations, the Canaanites, and destroyed them. That wasn't just something that happened, a coincidence. That was an answer to prayer. That was a divine intervention. Then there was a time that an Assyrian named Sennacherib came and he and his army surrounded the city of Jerusalem and there was no way out and they were under siege. And inside the city of Jerusalem, the king is praying and asking and seeking deliverance from the Lord. And he gets up the next morning and an angel has come during the night and destroyed an army of tens of thousands. They're dead. That's the ultimate weapon, the death angel. One can destroy an army. That's more powerful than nuclear weapons. He doesn't have to use technology. He's demonstrated it time and again in history. There have been these moments of the displays of the wrath and the power of God. But friends, we're sitting here tonight on an earth that is still living under the patience and the long-suffering of God. Because what He did to those cities and to those people in those times, He could have done to all the earth. And He hasn't done it. He didn't send us to destroy the earth. He didn't send us to conquer with the sword and submit nations and make people either lose their head or trust their soul to God or confess themselves to be Christians. Christianity is not advanced by power and by might of armies or by politics. Christianity is advanced by the gospel. But the gospel is an invitation. While it is in one sense an ultimatum from God and he warns what will happen if it is not accepted, he still leaves it to the individual to decide and he'll bring it back to you again and again and again and again. And tonight you have another opportunity. 
And even though you might have laughed at it or resisted it or deceived others about it before, all you have to do in one instant of time, repent and trust Christ. This is the greatness of our God. All will be forgiven and you will have a new life. Now you tell me where you're going to find a deal like that. God's patience reigns over the earth tonight, but his wrath is coming. His wrath is coming. In the book of Romans, chapter 2, we are told that the long-suffering of God should lead you to repentance. Why is he waiting? Why hasn't he done anything? Don't think for an instant that it's because he doesn't care. It's because he's leaving time for repentance. It's because in his love and his desire, but he will not coerce your will. You must decide. And yet he gives you again and again opportunities to to believe him, to trust him, to come to him. But the day of his wrath is coming. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 10 speaks of it very clearly. To wait, this is what we're doing. To wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us, that is, Christians, delivered us from the wrath to come. It's coming. Wrath is coming. They know it in heaven. They know it in the scriptures. People who belong to the Lord Jesus Christ know it. But people who live around us, and even some in our families, haven't figured out this great truth yet. Time is running out. And wrath is coming down the turnpike toward you. And you're standing there like a deer in the headlights, looking at it and not moving. Saved from the wrath to come. That terrible wrath that will be known in the book of Revelation under seven seals. Everyone open will bring a judgment. Seven trumpets, everyone that is blown will bring a judgment. And seven vials or bowls of wrath that will be poured out and bring great judgments upon the earth. Unprecedented times of earthquakes and cataclysms and invasions from the pit. Demonic invasions. Armies that humans cannot resist. Men out of their minds fighting and struggling against one another. The rulers of this earth having lost control. And the devil himself sending his ruler, the man of sin. The incarnation of every vile and putrid attribute of wickedness. All in one person who will rule. And it says, And the whole world marveled and wondered after the beast. And said, Who is like the beast? And who is able to make war with him? Want an answer? The wrath of the nations came. The wrath of Satan came. But the wrath of God is coming. The wrath of God is coming. There is a way tonight to be delivered from this terrible day of wrath. There is a way tonight to be delivered from that terrible time of suffering. And that way is to repent of your sins, to recognize who you are and what you are by nature, and to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, to give yourself and your life to Him. And then when He takes His family, that is the true believers, up to heaven, you won't be left here. Who's going to be meeting in this building the first Sunday after the rapture? Who's going to come over here and try to have a meeting? True believers are not going to be here. We're going to be gone. Are you going to wake up spiritually only then to find it too late forever because you received not the love of the truth that you might be saved? Think about it, friend. The day of God's wrath is coming. Don't abuse the day of his patience, his long suffering. Don't abuse it. Because when it's gone, like they say where I grew up, there ain't no more when it's gone. Thy wrath has come. And, number three, the time of the dead, that they should be judged. Think of this. Even in the book of Daniel, in the Old Testament, we're told there's coming a day when the books are going to be opened. Daniel chapter 7. When the books are going to be opened, God sitting on the throne is going to judge. We said before that 2,000 years ago there was a judgment day. God judged our sins in Christ on the cross at Calvary. But friend of mine, if you don't accept that judgment, 
that Christ suffered for you on your behalf there on the cross of Calvary, you're going to face the other judgment. Because there's two judgments. We're living in a parenthesis in time. We're living in a period, an interlude of time between those two great judgments when God judged Christ for our sins. But those who do not accept that judgment and accept that Savior who suffered for them, they're going to face God for their own sins. That's the judgment that's coming. That the dead, listen to me, the dead will be judged. Don't worry about how history is going to judge you. What a foolish statement. Never mind that. God is going to judge you, not history. God. He's going to open the books, Daniel says. He sat down and he said there was a river of fire before him. The saints were ministering to him. He sat down and the books were opened. Just like in Revelation 20, 11 to 15. The books were opened. And the dead were judged out of the things that were written in the books according to their works. He doesn't miss a thing. It's all written down. The thoughts, the words, the deeds, the intents of the heart, the omissions of things that should have been done. They're all in God's books. It's all accounted for. And all he has to do in that great judgment day is find one sin to demonstrate to you that you are a sinner. You think you could get by sinning just one time a day? You'd be probably the most saintly person here if you could do that. Sin one time a day. Well, let's see. If you live to be 10 years old, sinning one time a day, 365 days to the year, 3,650 sins. This is the way it goes. 20, 30. There's a few people here over 30 years old today. And I imagine most of us sin more than once a day. Imagine what is going to be found on God's books when He opens them. Do you want to sit and have an accounting session with God? Or do you want to accept that judgment celebrated 2,000 years ago on the cross of Calvary? The dead are going to be judged, friends. Those people who are supposedly resting in the graveyards... They haven't escaped anything. Those dictators and mass murderers and criminals who are gone, the liars and the cheats and the thieves who are gone, they haven't escaped anything. It's all in God's books. And the dead are going to be judged. For John in the book of Revelation says, I saw the dead stand before God, small and great. You ever seen a dead person on his feet? I saw the dead, small and great. Stand before God. They shall be judged, John says in Revelation eleven eighteen. The time of the dead. The dead have an appointment. The dead are going to be judged. Nothing has escaped the notice of God. John five twenty five. In John 5, 28 and 29, our Lord warned the people in his day what would happen to those who had died. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God and they that hear shall live. Now on the, the day of the uh, All Saints Day, they go to the graveyards in some countries and they play music. The mariachi bands go into the cemeteries and other bands and they play the favorite music of the dead and they take them their favorite foods and they leave them on the tombstones and before the sepulchers and then uh, the vagabonds and the animals come in and eat it. Those people don't hear anything. They don't hear the music. And they sit down on the tombs and they cry and they look at the picture and they caress the tombstone and... They talk to their deceased beloved as if they could hear them. They don't hear a thing. There's one thing a dead person can hear. The voice of the Son of God. In verse 29 it says, or verse 28, Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming in which all that are in the graves shall hear His voice. And shall come forth, they that have done good, unto the resurrection of life. And they that have done evil, unto the resurrection of damnation. 
What good could you do to deserve this resurrection of life? It's not good works. When the people came in John chapter 6 and said to the Lord, What good must we do to work the works of God? He said, This is the work that you must do. Believe on Him whom God has sent. This is the only thing that you can do, the doing of which you haven't done anything. This is the work that He requires of us. This is our response to God. The good that we can do. Believe in Him who has been sent of God to take away our sins. The Lord Jesus Christ. And those who don't do it, judgment is coming. You're sitting here tonight and you haven't trusted the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior yet. You haven't repented of your sins. You may not even call yourself a Christian or you may be one of these fake nominal Christians with no life inside of you, just words. Let me tell you, you're dead. Ephesians 2 says it very clearly. He's speaking to believers. He said, you has he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. That's your spiritual condition tonight. Spiritually, you are dead. You have no relationship or fellowship with God, and that's the reason why you do the things you do. That's the reason why you are the way you are, and your life is in the condition that it's in. And from there, it's only downhill. And if you die physically while you're dead spiritually, then you're going to be one of those to hear the voice of God and hear the voice of the Son of God and come forth to the resurrection of damnation, of condemnation. Because you're going to be taken out of the tomb. And I don't care if they burn your body and spread the ashes over some river or the sea. Remember, the omniscient and omnipotent God will get your molecules back together. He'll recompose you. The dead stood before God. Small and great. You're not going to miss anybody. The dead, small and great before God. Body, soul, and spirit. Because in this life you sinned in body, soul, and spirit. And your body, soul, and spirit must give account before God. The dead will be judged. Are you going to be one of those? Or do you want to accept that great judgment that took place at Calvary 2,000 years ago for you in the person of Jesus Christ? If you try to do it your own way, it's the sure way to ruin an eternal loss. In verse 18, he says that thou shouldest give reward to thy servants, the prophets, to the saints and them that fear thy name, small and great. I love this part because he speaks of the time of the wrath of the nations, the time of the wrath of God, the time of the judgment of the dead. But now he speaks of the reward to God's people. This is a word of hope and encouragement to believers. This is a word to to stimulate us and to encourage us to keep on those of us who know Christ and serve him, who follow him, to keep going. A reward is coming for the faithful. The time is coming. There are no rewards for Christians here in this earth. We're not even told to lay up treasures on earth. We're told to lay them up in heaven, where moth and rust do not corrupt and thieves do not break through and steal. But as William McDonald used to say, for the majority of people who call themselves Christians, those verses might as well not even be in the Bible. We think of 64 theological reasons why they can't mean what they say. But they do mean what they say. They do. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. There is a reward coming for the faithful who live not for themselves, but for their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Those who have suffered, those who have given up things that they could have had in this world, in this life, and have lived that life instead for Christ. Maybe they lost friends. Maybe they lost family. Who knows what condition some Christians have had to live in in different places around the world, and even in this country, because of their faithfulness to Christ. And some of the worst persecution and despising has come from other so-called Christians. More so than from the world. But the Lord always tells us, keep your eyes on me. Keep your eyes on me. In Revelation 22 and verse 12, he says, Behold, I come quickly and my reward is with me 
My reward is with me. The Lord's coming. Brother, sister, the Lord's coming. He's coming quickly. And his reward is with him. The world doesn't like it. Never mind them. Keep your eyes on the Lord. Professing nominal Christians, worldly carnal Christians, they don't like it. Never mind them. Keep your eyes on the Lord. Don't imitate the world. Don't imitate the carnal. There's no reward for them. But on that day when the faithful, when his servants, the prophets who suffered, and some were cut in half, and others were stoned and thrown into pits and thrown to the lions, when there's people over the years who've lived in caves and animal skins and been despised and rejected of men, people who've lost everything because they served Christ and because they were faithful to Christ, people like that young woman that we took into our home in Spain, her family threw her out on the street because she believed in Christ and never took her back. People who have suffered for Christ's sake. There's a reward coming. But don't expect it from the government. They're not going to hang a medal on you. Don't expect it from society. Behold, I come quickly. And my reward is with me. And that reward, brother, sister, lasts forever. Lasts forever. One moment in his presence and the mere words, well done, good and faithful servant from his mouth will assuage all the grief and sorrow and pain that you have been through in this life. And you'll be able to say in the words of that old chorus, it will be worth it all. And there's another one where we say, by and by, when I look on his face, I'll wish I had given him more. The reward is coming. The Lord is coming. And we, his people, are happy. His reward is with him. But let me ask you tonight, who are you serving? The Lord has a reward for those who serve Him, for those who are faithful to Him. We know about the things He says here in His Word. Those who read His Word, those who hear it, those who obey it, He remembers them. He who has my Word and keeps it, the Lord says, He it is that loves me. Who are you serving tonight? If you're serving yourself, you might not have a reward. You're spending your life trying to get your own way. Instead of pleasing Christ and doing His will, you spend your whole life resisting God's will, God's word, God's authority, His guidance for your life. You want to put life in the mold you made instead of in the mold God made for it. No reward. Sins are forgiven by the grace of God. But the rewards that we see here are for those who serve Him. For the saints, that means the holy, not the worldly. The world has no place in the church. The world's philosophy, the world's music, the world's behavior, it has no place in the church. The church is the bride of Christ. The church is supposed to be attractive to the bridegroom, Christ, not to the world that's trying to seduce it. The church belongs to Christ. And those who are holy follow him. She keeps herself unspotted from the world. The saints, the holy, the separated, and to them that fear thy name, small and great. It doesn't matter who you are or how much you earn. Small and great. You fear the Lord, the Lord has a reward for you. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Nobody ever gets smart, truly, until they learn to fear the Lord. And he says, finally, in this verse, and should this destroy them which destroy the earth. This is the final thing when this time comes. Those who destroy the earth are going to be destroyed. And I can just hear some people saying, well, now you see, I always knew ecology had a place in the Bible. This is not talking about whales and certain species of butterflies or salamanders. Or forests or rivers. The word destroy here. And when we read the Bible. We need to understand what the words of the Bible mean. We need to take the time to look at them. And study them. The word destroy means to corrupt. Or to ruin. It doesn't mean to annihilate. This is where the so called. The falsely called Jehovah's Witnesses and others. Go astray. They read a word like destruction. And they think it means annihilation. It means to bring to a state of ruin. 
And those who are bringing this world to a state of ruin and corrupting it, God says, I'm going to bring them to a state of ruin. But now let's think, what is the real corruption of this world? It's not oil spills or plastics that aren't recycled. The real corruption of this world began in Genesis chapter 3. And it's a three-letter word, sin. Sin has ruined this planet. Sin in the hearts of men and women have ruined this planet. Ruined nations, ruined continents, ruined families, ruined everything. It is a constant pouring forth of corruption, of selfishness. Lovers of their own selves and haters of that which is good. Selfish, going to do what you want. I'll smoke in your face if I want to. The problem is not the cigarette. The problem is the attitude. The problem is the heart of the person. It's the sin. It's the corruption. This is what destroys marriages. This is what destroys friendships. This is what destroys fellowship and cooperation, even between Christians. Sin. This is what destroys nations. It brings nation against nation. This is what causes bloodshed and political corruption. This is what mesmerizes the, man, the mind of man so that he can't find the solution. Sin. It enslaves humanity. Sin. People don't want to leave it because they like it. They're addicted to it. They're crazy by it. And they don't know how to get out of it. Sin is corrupting and ruining this planet. And those who corrupt and ruin the earth are sinners. It's nasty poison, sin. It's nasty poison. It's worse than the most vile and rapidly spreading disease or virus that you can think of. It's worse than AIDS by millions of times. And the whole human race is infected with it already. You are sin positive. And God promises that the day coming when he's going to reward his saints, those who trust in him, and he's going to bring to ruin those who have brought to ruin this beautiful planet that God made, the Garden of Eden. When sin entered into that garden and that corruption began and it spread from there over all the earth, read the history in God's Word. Read it and find out what happened to a planet that God made to be inhabited in blessed fellowship with Him. Find out what we did to it by sin. It's our fault. I don't buy it when people say, if there's a God in heaven, how come He lets the little black kids suffer in Africa? How come the people in India this? How come the people in Bangladesh this? That's not God's fault. That's our fault. That's humanity's fault. We kicked God out of His planet. We got Him out of our schools. We got Him out of our families. And He's even out of some professing evangelical churches. He's out. And people do what they want to. And then when they find the consequences, they complain. And they drag God out of the closet and slap Him around a few times and send Him back in there. It's not God's fault. Humanity has corrupted this planet with sin. Because we listen to the voice of the devil instead of to the voice of God. And we listen to our own will instead of the will of God. And we have gone this way. What did Isaiah say? All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. That's what's corrupted the planet. And judgment day is coming. 1 Peter 4, 7 says, The end of all things is at hand. I would be remiss tonight if I didn't remind you of that. The end of all things is at hand. In Revelation 10, we read those awful words that time shall be no more. It's ending, friends. It's ending, brothers and sisters. And tonight is a night of decision. What are you going to do with this night, this time that God has given you tonight? What are you going to do with your life? What are you going to do with your person? What are you going to do and who are you going to trust and follow? In light of the things that God has declared in His Word, time is winding down and soon will be no more. And you may wait too late to make that fateful decision. As so many people down the years of history have done. They put it off, and they put it off, and they put it off, and they said tomorrow, and later, 
and when I'm older and when I'm finished this and when I've tried that and tragedy came and it was too late. Time's up. And now my time is up. And I must say goodbye. But I leave you with this. Just as surely as we have to finish this meeting and bring it to a close, God is bringing human history to a close, to a climax. And now is the time to decide who you trust, who you follow, and who you serve. May the Lord give you his grace to make that right decision and not to put it off one instant longer. Today is the day of salvation. Amen.